Well, let's get started here. Um, keeping our look at angels and demons. We're still specifically, uh, primarily looking at angels right now. We'll move to demons after we kind of go over most of what we want to say about the uh, angels. And we finished up talking last week about basically what an angel and a demon really is. Spiritual being created by God that are great in power, um, not really bound to any specific space per se. Um, extremely wise, powerful, glorious, but certainly nowhere near the level of majesty, knowledge, power of God himself who oversees rules and at the end of the day is simply just more powerful by infinite order of degree than any angel or all the angels. Um, and I believe we also left off saying they're also personal beings. They're not something that uh, ancient times they used to describe forces they couldn't understand. They really are personal beings with will, intentions, and the ability to act or not act uh, according to their uh, own decisions. Um, any questions from last time before we move into some of the more uh, intriguing things people have about angels these days? By the way, how many of you have seen those shows like Touched by an Angel? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Highway to Heaven. That was, there you go. There you go. That was, that was phasing out about the time I was aging up enough to watch and understand those kinds of shows. Very entertaining, but... Oh, no doubt. <laughs> Not exactly what you would call theologically Sound. profound, but uh, certainly uh, good TV. Not bad the shows now. Well, exactly. I'd rather have those kinds of shows than... You could bring some of that kind of stuff back on television. Wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings, that's for sure. No, probably wouldn't. Well, probably would. Probably would be something. Wouldn't hurt our feelings, let's put it that way. But those shows, of course, beg the question, well, what do angels look like? We already talked about this a little bit last time, and we'll probably move somewhat more quickly through this just because we already touched on it a lot of things. Now, you all know what popular depictions of angels. We, we all seen pictures of angels. What do they look like in the pictures? Well, they look like a bee with wings that can fly around, have a halo. Right, yeah, they got the nice big halo. They got those big, white, fluffy wings. Um, they usually have these nice smooth features and a nice long white robe, right? I, I don't think I've... There aren't too many outside of TV shows like Highway to Heaven where they basically just look like you and me where they don't look like that, right? So why do people think they look like that? Where did that come from? Now, it's important to remember, we already said, they don't actually have physical forms as though that's a part of who and what they are, as though they always have those forms and they, we, when we see them, we see them as they really are. Uh, no, they can choose to take all kinds of different forms. Or uh, no form at all for that matter. But why, so if that's the case, what we said last time, that they're primarily spiritual beings without bodies and features, why do we depict them that way? Well, there are actually reasons that even go back to the Bible to figure out those reasons. Where do we get the idea that angels have wings? Well, there's uh, two very good places to go in the Bible for that. Somebody want to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Somebody else to Zechariah 5.9. Isaiah 6 um, will certainly not sound like the angels you're normally seeing, except for one particular feature. And um, Just so we have a stopping point. Um, I read especially Isaiah 6, verse 1 through uh, 3 will be enough. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings that covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. Did you want to include three? Yeah, we can say three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. All right. So, what does... uh, There you have a picture of the angels. It doesn't describe almost any other feature, except that they have faces, bodies, feet. What those look like, who knows? The big thing it points out is, what do they have? Six of them. Six wings. Six wings. So there's a point where uh, the vision of the angel includes clearly a being with wings, right? Now turn to, uh, that's still a little different than what we have, because usually we see the pictures of angels with two big flowing wings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Zechariah 5.9 will actually describe something a lot closer to that. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between, between heaven and earth. Right. Obviously, that's part of a fuller vision. We're not talking too much about what the basket was and represents and all of that. This isn't a Bible study on Zechariah. But what he's seeing is a picture of women, or what in his vision is women. And what do they look like? They have wings like a stork. Now, if you were to describe the wings you see on the pictures, I don't know what you uh, bird classification knowledge you have, <laughs> but they are certainly the wings that they look, basically, you could say, I could see those being stork-like wings. Point being, that's where these pictures come from. They come from biblical imagery where when people saw these visions of angels, sometimes, and notice how many times did we look at, just two, How many times did people see angels in the uh, scriptures? Frequently and often. You know how many times they're described with wings? (laughs) Well, here's two. (laughs) There's a couple of others. But by and large, wings aren't pointed out. So it's not as though it's always the case that angels appear with wings. It's just that in a couple of cases, there are images of them with wings. And so that caught the popular imagination. For whatever reason, that stuck. As when you paint an angel so that people know you're painting an angel and not just some random guy in a white robe. Wings. So that's where we get the popular imagery. It's not bad imagery. By the way, if angels don't necessarily have wings, why would they have shown them with wings? Why would they have appeared with wings? They had to choose something, so that sounds like a good thing to choose. Right, well, (laughs) it communicates something. And just to give you an idea that Angels don't always look the like. I'll just take a picture of one of the weirder visions of angels in good old Ezekiel, where, uh, again, this one has wings. Here we go. I looked, this is Ezekiel seeing a vision of the Lord and his attending angels. And I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud, so on and so forth. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. Now, these are almost certainly a kind of angel. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, they did not turn as they moved. The faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. 
Such were the faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another of the other creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, so on and so forth. Skip a little bit. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth between the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of light. The description only gets weirder from there. Imagine painting that. Now, is that going to be the thing you want to have your kids up hanging above your bed? Here's your guardian angel, dear. Face of an ox, a lion, a man, and an eagle. Do angels actually look like that? Like we said, almost certainly they don't really look like anything. They appear in certain forms to convey certain impressions, to give a certain uh, idea about them and what they're there for. Uh, and we can go into all kinds of speculation about what each of these things represented in the vision about these four faces, but the point is, it's conveying something about them. Why do they have wings? Well, no doubt, something to convey this image of glory and this uh, higher-than-the-earth, kind of like the birds themselves fly over the earth. So likewise, these beings are somewhat, in some sense, higher than and above the earth. It's not that they have wings, it's that it communicates something about these beings, so they manifest with them. At other times, an angel appears fully dressed for war. No wings mentioned. Why? Because he wears armor as he marches around? Well, probably not, but because he was trying to convey, I am the leader of the Lord's armies, and just like a strong warrior, I'm here to fight. So on and so forth. It's meant to give a certain impression to form people to think a certain way. Angels wearing white robes. That one you could probably, can you imagine, even without looking down at your sheet, do you remember a time in the scriptures where angels appear in white robes? At the tomb. There's the, one of the big ones. At the tomb, what happens? The ladies go there and what do they see? An angel sitting at the... Right. And his clothes is white as lightning, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where this idea of always depicting angels with white comes from because especially in the New Testament, the angels are often depicted as wearing blindingly white clothes. Again, do angels wear clothes? Even Adam and Eve didn't wear clothes. <laughs> Chances are no, they don't actually go around up in heaven wearing certain kinds of clothes and you need a certain kind of quality made in uh, this section of heaven to get in. But again, to convey something about them, their purity, their holiness, their righteousness. Make sense? Halos. Halo is just an artistic way of depicting holiness, glory, radiance, which angels are frequently described as having. But there is even one reference in the scriptures where an angel is described as having something like a halo, which is Revelation 10, verse 1. Um, if anybody wants to look that one up. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. All right. What's, by the way, any wings that are mentioned? What's he dressed in? Is it a nice shining white garment? No, it's a cloud. Uh, what's above his head, though? A rainbow. You can see that easily becoming, and if you're trying to paint it, something like a halo. Um, again, goes to this idea that the halo is a great way of this thing shining out of your head. By the way, when we say halo, we don't necessarily mean a solid golden ring. 
usually in the older paintings, what they have is radiance shining out. They mean a halo of light, something like a, a light shining off of them. Uh, that's why they, that's what they're trying to depict when they paint angels that way, is they have some kind of radiance coming off of them. More to the point, less is the rainbow of a halo in this image than the fact that his head is gleaming like the sun. That's a halo, more or less. Again, do angels have halos? Not any more than, I suppose, Mary had a halo wandering around as she wandered through life, or for that matter, Jesus had a halo. Um, it was just a way that artists depict things that are shown in the scriptures about the radiance, the holiness, the goodness, uh, and righteousness of the people or figures or beings that are appearing. Make sense? So, basic point to take home. Get it out of your head that angels actually look like anything. You need a physical form to look like something. They don't have physical forms. They can take them as they see fit. And by the way, let's just spend a uh, couple of minutes talking about the forms to drive this point home. Somebody want to turn to Hebrews 13 too, which is probably one of the most interesting statements about angels. Do not forget to entertain strangers. Strangers. For by doing so, people have entertained angels without knowing it. All right. Um, by the way, the word there, the NIV translates entertain, um, is actually better. Um, most versions of the Bible will render it hos show hospitality. Um, so it's not about trying to make them happy and feel good. It's about welcoming them in their home, treating them as good guests, and taking care of them. Uh, but what does it say here about what happens to, when you... To some people who have shown hospitality to strangers. Been an angel. They actually might have been entertaining angels. Now, it's possible, I suppose, that the Hebrew author meant messenger of the Lord without knowing it. But given how much the uh, author of the Hebrews talks about uh, um, angels specifically as angels, as heavenly beings, it's probably the case he actually means Heavenly beings they have entertained, who came down and took the form of what? Just a random stranger. No glory, no wings, no halo, no white robe, just looked like John Langton. Um, is that his name? What was his name from the Highway to Heaven? Michael. Michael! Sorry. Michael Langton. I didn't know John. It was his lesser known brother. He was a He was a demon. He was the bad one. Anyway, Michael Langton. Um, yeah, point being, it sounds a lot like what the scripture is saying is sometimes angels do actually just take human form and appear for who knows what purpose. Perhaps even, according to this, possibly, it's insinuating, sometimes even to give you an opportunity to show your Christian life and good works. Not that they, and notice it says, they never come to know that they were entertaining angels. It's just, they have done it without knowing it. Interesting thought, but the point here I want to highlight is they can take very humble, very unassuming forms. They can assume a variety of other forms. Take 2 Corinthians 11, 14, for example. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of the light. Right, so here again we're just pointing to a, what a demon can do. Um, even Satan can take the form and appearance in both, I suppose, a literal and a metaphorical sense of looking like an angel of God, like something striking in holiness and goodness, when we know, obviously, Satan is neither holy nor good nor particularly glorious. But they can present themselves 
in virtually any way they want. Or take 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8, where you will see they don't even need to have a form to interact. I'm pretty sure I mean 2 Kings 19. I meant 2 Kings 19, 35 to uh, 36. I don't know what I was typing there, sorry. 35 to 36. Huh? Yes. I don't know if I want to read that one either. <laughs> that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there was all the dead bodies. So the king of Assyria broke <laughs> camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. All right. So um, first of all, does this angel apparently take any form? Just comes and it kills like we talked. I think we mentioned this episode briefly before, but... 185,000 people are dead. Um, probably not the case that he appeared in the form of a, a, a man with a sword and went from tent to tent stabbing people. Um, almost certainly the case that the angel of the Lord just came without appearing in any sense and just ended the life of 185,000 people in their sleep in such a peaceful way that nobody even noticed it until they woke the next morning. Point being, angels don't even have to take physical form to act on the physical world and interact with the physical world. An testimony both to their power and to their non-corporeal being. All right, so that's enough, I think, to make the point we're trying to make here. But let's so let's move on to uh, some other topics. Unless you have any other questions or things you want to talk about with the uh, appearance of angels, these two we might not even need to look up because. Uh, it's pretty obvious. I think we all know the answers to these. Where, where did angels come from then? Quite obviously, they were created by God. They are part of the creation. They are not lesser gods that were always there. They were made by God. I only uh, cite uh, Colossians 1.16 to make the point more explicitly, but we all know angels were created by God. The question, of course, people sometimes want to know is, well, when were they created by God? Do you know where scripture tells us when they were created? It doesn't. <laughs> we can only uh, make a few deductions about a range of time that they were created. We could probably safely guess, even though it's a guess, that they were created during the six days of creation. And that wasn't specified exactly when they were created in any explicit way. Why do we say that it might have happened during the six days of creation? That's when God made everything. That's when God made everything. What was there before the six days of creation, according to Genesis? Nothing. Nothing. There was God, and that's it. And then, uh, in those, uh, and aside from the fact that it overtly states God finished his work of creation and rested on the seventh day, um, what happens shortly after creation? Who comes into the garden to make a mess of everything? The devil. The devil. Where did the devil come from? Did God create him on the day that he tempted Adam and Eve? Probably not, but it implies that the devil was already in existence by the time of the fall. Otherwise, he couldn't have been there to tempt them. So we can reasonably say sometime during the six days of creation, God created the angels. Okay. Well, we can further ask, well, then what led to all of these, uh, these uh, the devil and all of these other angels to be cast out of heaven? We'll get to that later. Um, that'll well, be who, do you, who or how will you uh, explain if somebody asks, well, did God create the devil? Then? You would say, absolutely, because the devil is 
as scripture clearly says, um, a fallen angel. And scripture actually does explicitly say that. Um, we'll come to that a little later when we get to talking about the devil and demons per se. But uh, do know, the devil, as a fallen angel, is a creature of God. He was created as an angel who rebelled against God. And that'll lead us, of course, to the further statement that angels are apparently capable of rebelling against God. And uh, that is not a good thing for those rebel angels, by any means. Because, uh, as we'll also talk about... They don't have a chance at redemption. They are simply lost forever if they choose to rebel against God. But the answer to, if somebody asks you, well, where did the devil come from? Point, don't hesitate to say, well, God made him. Uh, God didn't make him as the devil. He made him as an angel who rebelled against God. Um, any other questions? Good question, though. All right, so uh, let's talk about the number and kinds of angels. We, there's not a whole lot to say about this, only several things. We won't necessarily look up all of these verses. Um, a lot of these I'll just touch on. But uh, first of all, we don't know how many angels God created. We just don't. Uh, the only thing we can say is that there are a whole heck of a lot of angels. Go to, we'll just read Daniel 7.10 as a good example of this. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. This, by the way, is Daniel's vision of the heavenly courtroom. God is the one who's sitting down on the throne. And, the, and what he sees is obviously 10,000 times 10,000, which is not a way to say there is exactly um, whatever 10,000 times 10,000 is, angels. It's to say there's just a huge multitude that who could possibly count them surrounding God. And who, what are these attendants? Almost certainly, they're angels. Think also to Christmas night, what appears in the sky to the shepherds? An angel. An angel, and then what happens after he tells them the good news? Host. Host. A whole host, a multitude of, of the heavenly host. Right. Gets you the impression, there's a lot of these guys running around up there. And by the way, there are apparently different kinds, and there are apparently different classes of angels, though we know virtually nothing about them, whether how many classes there are, how we could possibly assort them into various, I suppose, species of angels, if you wanted to use that terminology, we, or even what distinguishes them from each other. We just know that the scripture refers to different angels differently. For instance, um, we read Isaiah already, 6 um, verses 1 through 3, and it explicitly calls those angels surrounding the throne of God the seraphim, which, by the way, loosely translated means burning ones. But uh, if we went to others, and I'll just mention the verses, I won't have us look up all of them. We will look up archangel just for uh, interesting interest sake. But there's cherubim. By the way, you've probably heard of cherub. You've probably seen cherubs before too. People depict cherubs for whatever reason as little babies, little pudgy babies with wings floating around. It's like Cupid is it meant to be a cherub? Do they actually look like that? No, it's just a cute way of depicting them. But Scripture refers to cherubim as opposed to uh, other kinds of angels. So does that have a meaning then too? I don't remember off the top of my head. I'll have to look that one up. There is a couple of references to 
archangels, which is clearly a reference to um, a higher level angel. RK, by the way, is the Greek word for head or first. Um, so you might call the, uh, that's why you call, for instance, Herod the Tetrarch. What did it mean? Ark being first head that is ruler of the area. Tetra meaning five. It was broken up in, or four, it's broken up into four rulers. So he was one of those. Archangel, therefore, is a kind of a reference to a ruler among the angels. And there are actually a couple of uh, references directly talking about archangels. Um, there's 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and Jude 1.9, if somebody wants to read that. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of, a, of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. All right, so who comes down? Not just any old angel, but the voice of an archangel. That is some kind of higher, more noble class, so to speak, of angels. Jude 1.9 is a particularly interesting one that we'll come back to again later, but let's read it now. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So, what, how is Michael described? What kind of angel is he? He is an archangel. And uh, as we'll see, this is not a, uh, a lone outlying description of Michael. Even in the Old Testament, we'll see Michael is described as a prince among the angels in some sense. So that is to say, there are obviously greater and lesser angels. There's other things um, frequently in the New Testament when it talks about principalities, powers, dominions, and rulers. It specifically means um, in the heavenly places. That is among the heavenly host, among the angels, and among the demons. So there are ranks, there are different kinds. The differences between them mean almost nothing to us because scripture tells us almost nothing about them. And we can know nothing about them. However, if you ever are uh, curious, you could dig into uh, um, Talmudic um, Judaism, where uh, rabbis back in the day spent a whole lot of time talking about what kinds of angels there might be, um, what kinds of ranks. There was even a long uh, tradition in uh, Catholic thinking where they have different classes of angels that you can rank by very specific means and attributes. Interesting reading, completely made up. Which is to say, there's no basis for any of the uh, conclusions that any of those writers come to. But it's interesting just to see how people have thought. Is that there are differences, but we know nothing beyond that. But it's also worth saying, likewise among demons, there are apparently greater and lesser um, spirits. Um, most definitively, we'll just point this out because we're going to talk about demons at more length. There's obviously one demon who is kind of more important and more powerful than all the others. You probably even know his name. <laughs> Satan. Scriptures overtly describe Satan as uh, the one who has all the others as minions. He's the head honcho, so to speak, of all of the rebellious angels against God. And uh, in a very real sense, he is their head and ruler. So when you hear about uh, people call, talking about the devil as a ruler, in a certain sense, 
It's true. He rules over all of the, uh, the uh, evil angels and demons, but that's not exactly a, a winning kingdom by any means. Um, that doesn't mean he rules over hell, which is an important distinction. Hell is a place where he, the devil is punished just as much as everybody else. It's not his domain. <laughs> Any questions about that? I know we could, we're, we're going to talk a lot more about the devil later, so I'm not trying to say anything more about it except to highlight this is true of both angels and demons, that there are different ranks. All right, so one question, of course, that might come to mind is why does Scripture even mention the difference if it's not going to give us any details? Well, I'll just uh, read what I wrote here because it's uh, a nice way of summary that will keep me from rambling. The details aren't important for us to know. Knowing that there are differences only serves to highlight the scope, the power, and the majesty of God over this world and his dominion even over the very real and present evil of the forces of Satan. Um, to go beyond that and speculate about those differences between angels and demons and their various ranks is to go beyond scripture and it's just to venture into pure speculation. That is to say, you're just making things up at that point. But it is helpful to know God doesn't just create a hugely unnecessary diversity of life here on this earth. He creates, I suppose you might say, a hugely unnecessary diversity even among the invisible creation. God is just that kind of overflowing, gracious creator. Any thoughts or questions about that? Now, it's also worth noting, obviously, even the angels have definite identities. Um, there are two that Scripture even gives names to that persist throughout time. Specifically, Gabriel and Michael are the two angels that get a, uh, a specific billing. And they actually crop up across both Testaments. Um, go to, let's look at Gabriel first. Let's take turns here. Somebody want to look up Daniel 8, 15 to 26. Somebody else, Daniel 9, 20 to 27, um, and then somebody 10, 20 to 21. All right, somebody want to read if you have, anyone has it, 8, 15 to 26. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of, man, son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because a vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two horns. We can actually stop there and okay. not get into the details of the vision, um, just because that'll get uh, very weird. Worth looking at. Maybe sometime we'll do a Bible study on Daniel. But uh, one thing: what's the name of this one who appears in the form of a man? Gabriel. Gabriel. Very directly, it's called Gabriel. Um, and what does this angel do? What's what what job does God give him in verse sixteen? Right. Report to this man the meaning of the vision. This man being Daniel. All right, and he uh, crops up again. 9, uh, 20 to 27. Actually, just read 20 to 23 will be good enough. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, 
While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as we, as you begin to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. All right. Okay, so there again, Gabriel, same exact one appears, this time he's flying um, towards Daniel. And again, what job does Gabriel have? And said to me, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Again, he's helping to explain what God is showing him. All right, ver chapter 10, 20 through 21. So he said, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. All right. There again, um, it doesn't as directly say, this will make more sense after we read a little bit about Michael, but... Um, it's almost certainly, again, that other angel, Gabriel, who is reporting this to him. And again, uh, Job, what's he doing in verse 21? First, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. There again, he's reporting, instructing, teaching, revealing what God means and is about to do. Now, where is the most famous appearance of Gabriel, the angel? The one that sticks out probably in your mind if you remember anything about Gabriel. Who else does he appear to in the New Testament? Mary. Mary. And just before that, by the way, Zachariah. Zachariah and Mary. Gabriel comes, and what is the job there that Gabriel performs to both of them? Both there are going to be, Zachariah is going to be a father of John the Baptist. Right. And Mary is going to be the mother of Jesus. Right. He comes to tell them what's going, what God is up to, and the meaning of what God is up to. Almost the same exact thing that he does in Daniel. Gabriel seems to have this unique function of reporting and explaining the revelation of God at very key moments. But Gabriel is a very consistent figure. By the way, obviously very old. <laughs> Daniel was uh, many hundreds of years before Jesus and Mary and Joseph, and Zechariah. Um, point being, angels are also immortal, by the way. But, interesting, Gabriel is not just there in the New Testament, never heard from again, but consistently throughout. Michael, going back to Daniel, uh, also makes some relatively frequent appearances. Somebody just want to read all of those Daniel passages. Daniel 10, 12 through 13, first of all. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come to, in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. All right. Now, I just want to clarify a couple of things that aren't very clear unless we read a lot more of Daniel. First of all, 
This is another vision that Daniel is having. Daniel, by the way, is in the uh, land of Persia and all of that. Um, and uh, in verse 10, it says, a hand touched me, sent me. It doesn't specify who it is, but he's come to, to tell him about what's going to happen. Very possible. It's not out of the realm of probability that this is also, again, Gabriel, the same man who's kept coming to Daniel and explaining to him visions and giving him visions. But while he's talking to him, he said, while this uh, clearly angelic being is talking to Daniel, he makes a couple of points. One of them being that Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia which is a very interesting statement all in its own right, as though the angel Gabriel was involved in some kind of work with the king of Persia and another angel, the chief of the princes, the archangel Michael, had to come and help him in some sense. Which, on the one hand, understand how the worldview of scripture seems to be uh, painting things here. We're all very concerned with all of the things and pieces and players and powers moving here below in terms of what we can see, touch, taste, and smell, right? Well, Scripture seems to understand there's also this whole nother transcendence chess game, so to speak, going on above our heads in things that we can't even perceive. Or there's a whole nother gamut of players, individuals, powers, and things moving in ways we cannot even hope to understand or even perceive. It's, it's just helpful to understand scripture has a much bigger view of the world than uh, most everyone in the world does but mentions michael as uh, first of all one of the chief princes let's skip ahead quickly to uh, 21 where michael gets mentioned again but first i will tell you what is written in the book of truth no one supports me against them except michael your prince okay now um, Michael, and whose prince is Michael now? It's not just the, one of the chief princes, it's your prince. Um, so, in a certain sense, one who is set over you. Not just Daniel individually, but uh, as we'll see, our, uh, as, um, well, we'll come to it later. But, point being, um, this angel also, in some sense, seems to have uh, some kind of measure of power responsibility for more than just the angels, but also for certain sectors of humanity. Does that make sense? Let's go to 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at a time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. All right. Here again is Michael referred to again. And uh, who is the, uh, I guess, uh, let me put it this way. What job does Michael apparently have here in this particular verse 1 of chapter 12? Just to protect your people. Right. The great prince who protects your people. Um, when we're talking about great prince... Tying in with what uh, is also said in the New Testament about Michael, which we'll turn to briefly, um, it's almost certainly talking again about Michael as the archangel, as a ruler over the angels, as some kind of royalty, if you want to talk about it that way, over the rest of the angels, whose specific job is um, also protecting your people, Daniel. In fact, this, uh, these kinds of passages in Daniel came to give Michael the reputation, both among Jews and early Christians, that Mike, one of Michael's unique roles 
was the, I suppose you might say, the guardian angel of both Israel and the church. So much so that, in fact, there is on our liturgical calendar a festival day for St. Michael and all the angels. It was last month, if you care to know. Because scripture clearly talks about Michael as an archangel, as having some responsibility for protecting the people of God. And this gets even clearer as we move into the New Testament. Uh, Jude 1.9, as we already mentioned, is more kind of an oddity than anything else. And I just like to throw it out there as an oddity. Jude 1 through 9, uh, we read that before, so I'll just read it again, um, where it says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, that is, against the devil, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Jude is referencing some kind of event that we have no real insight into. Apparently, in some uh, distant realm of the heavenly places, There, there was an argument between the archangel Michael and, about, and between the devil about what happened with the body of Moses. You may remember in the Old Testament, it specifically says that nobody knows what happened to the body of Moses. He died, and nobody knows where he's buried even to this day. So apparently, even the angels don't know what happened to the body of Moses. And they're arguing about what happened to the body of Moses for whatever reason. Gives you a kind of a weird little insight into not only the uh, limitations of angels, but also the fact that they are capable of squabbling with one another. Um, angels against the de- devil and the demons. And Michael, rather than uh, making slanderous personal attacks on Satan, simply invokes the Lord to rebuke him. Like I said, more of an oddity and a point of interest than anything else to say. Mike, the angel Michael is referenced in the New Testament and not just in the book of Revelation, which is so full of picture language it's hard to say what to take literally and what not. But he does get big billing in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, 7 through 9. Somebody want to read that for us. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. And by the way, I'll just, um, why don't you read verse 10 through 12, just to highlight um, the connection this makes between what Daniel prophesied about how the great prince of the and defender of the people would uh, bring a certain kind of sal- saving to uh, the people. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation of the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser and our brothers who accuses them before our guard day and not before our God day and night have been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of, his, of their testimony. So they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, your heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. All right. We're going to come back to that passage, particularly when we get to the devil in... Uh more detail, but uh, let's focus first of all on Michael again. First of all, what is Michael doing here? He's fighting the devil. Right. There's a war in heaven. 
not on earth. Uh, There's a war in the spiritual realm, whatever that is, where the angels and the devil and his angels, that is the angels who sided with Satan, are actually fighting each other. And of course, what is the uh, outcome of this fight? The devil is cast down. Um, They are not able to overcome Michael and his angels, which, as Revelation says very shortly, they're not able, which ultimately is because they cannot overcome um, Christ and his word and his blood. And they're cast out from heaven. They're no longer able to accuse um, our brothers um, and accuse them day and night to God. He's lost his place, his power to destroy, and he's uh, defeated. But, Michael, in this sense, is uh, painted as the archangel who leads the hosts of armies against the devil in defense of Christ's people. It's an interesting way, interesting vision that uh, John has here, one that fits remarkably well with uh, what Daniel ha- has in his visions and re- revelations from the angel Gabriel, who reports about Michael's activity. Now, by the way, it's important to say uh, Michael here is depicted as affecting a certain kind of saving and deliverance for for the people he defends, namely Israel in the Old Testament, and uh, is also painted in Revelation as one of the point guards, you might say, or the big generals against devil and his Satan and his minions, and uh, is a a big part of their defeat. That does not mean that uh, the archangel Michael somehow is uh, treading on the the place that Christ alone holds. It's not as though Michael is able to deliver um, and Christ is also another kind of deliverer. Uh, Very clearly, Revelation in that verses 10 through 12 is pointing to the fact that to the extent that Michael as archangel, as prince of these angels, leading them against the devil and the Satan overcomes, what do they overcome? By whose power and by what means? By the blood of the lamb, by the Christ and his word. So that is to say, whatever salvation deliverance Michael the archangel is able to affect is still simply an outcrop of Christ's salvation power and authority who sends the archangel Michael to do these things. And what the archangel Michael, to the extent that he's able to accomplish any victory or uh, deliverances, does so only by the power um, of Christ. But still worth holding on to the point Apparently, there's a lot more going on above our heads than we're even dimly aware of. Um, there's, there's something to all of those literary and uh, film depictions of wars between angels and demons um, going on in the shadows. Not to say that uh, it's quite like literature or Hollywood paints it, but it is to say that certainly is how Scripture paints it. Well, here in Revelations, it talks like that battle is over and Satan has been thrown out of heaven right. down here on earth. Like the battle up there is no longer real. Right, and now the battle continues down here, so to speak. In a very real sense, uh, well, let's just call it like it is right now already with a kind of sneak preview when we talk to the devil. Where is the devil cast when he falls out of heaven? Down to earth. And what does he do on earth? He immediately starts trying to destroy everything that happens on earth, specifically in Revelation. He starts to try to destroy all of God's creatures here, and especially the seed of a woman. (laughs) Um, Namely, to stop the Christ from being born and accomplishing his total victory. Um, Which is to say, it almost mirrors um, 
how Genesis talks about how now suddenly there's this snake that appears in the garden and starts trying to destroy God's plans here below and destroy the woman who will ultimately uh, give birth to Christ and failing that starts to work tirelessly to destroy everything up leading up to Christ and then failing that tirelessly works to destroy Christ himself. Um, it's almost like Revelation is talking about what happened sometime in those first six days of creation or shortly thereafter, but before the fall. At any rate, and to, it's worth saying, if there's two angels called Gabriel and Michael, there are probably lots of other, that is to say 10,000 upon 10,000, which is to say who knows how many individual angels that each have their own identity and purpose given to them by God, who God commands, knows, and so on and so forth. God is not only dealing with a human race and all of its problems. God is perpetually dealing with the angelic host, um, both those who unswervingly follow his will and those who do not. God's a busy guy. All right. So uh, we'll, this last part I think we can get through fairly quickly, honestly, um, because a lot of these we've already read or you're already familiar with them. So what else can we say about angels? Well, we can certainly say that they're used at key moments of salvation history to announce what God's plans and purposes are, to help alleviate confusion and give them a certain word and promise from God to rely on. For instance, we just mentioned birth of John the Baptist, right? Angel comes and tells Zechariah what's about to happen and what it means. Birth of Jesus, obviously, they appear both to Mary and to Joseph to tell them don't be afraid, Joseph. Don't be afraid, Mary. Um, what's happening is not what you think is happening. It's God bringing forth the Christ. Or again, at the birth itself, announcing to the shepherds, guess what's just been born? Here's what it means. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Um, at the uh, resurrection of Jesus, as Irma mentioned, angels appear to tell these people what it means that this tomb is empty because who knows what they're going to think otherwise. Uh, at the ascension of Jesus, when the disciples are just staring up their slack jawed saying, well, what the heck? What happens? Angels appear to, to explain to them what this means and what's going to happen next. In the book of Revelation, they're all over the map at key, at key moments of salvation, both from the beginning of the world, like we saw, fighting against the devil, all the way up to the very end. Aside from those uh, key moments of salvation, they also carry out God's retribution against the enemies of God's people. We already read from 2 Kings. Now I have it right there in that one. I don't know why I got it wrong the first time. <laughs> 2 Kings 19, verse 35. The angel of the Lord appears and wipes out 185,000 members of that army. In Acts chapter 12, 23, Herod's getting pretty big for his britches, and an angel of the Lord, it says, comes and strikes him dead. God sends angels sometimes to exercise his wrath, retribution, and punishments. They'll also likely have very specific tasks related to the end of times. Um, there's so many places in Revelation we could go to that uh, feel free to look those up on your own, but uh, there's the seven bowls of God's wrath, there's the seven trumpets that angels are uh, blowing and pouring out all over the place in Revelation. But um, even in the Gospels, Jesus specifically references this, and we'll just read one of those just to give you an idea. Matthew 13, 47 through 50, what Jesus says about uh, the angels in their relationship to the final judgment. 47 through 50? Yes. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. 
When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. There you go. Um, that's, I mean, you could go on, but that's basically where it mentions the angels. He he's, talks as though the angels will come and they'll already kind of, you might say, line them up for the final judgment so that everybody knows exactly where they're going even before the final pronouncement. Um, in the other two verses I mentioned that are listed here, Jesus basically asserts when the angels go and gather God's elect on the last day. So in some sense, the angels will have this role of gathering up together those who will be pronounced justified and those who will be pronounced condemned. Uh, they also are described as worshiping and adoring God constantly. In Isaiah 6, that's what uh, Isaiah has a vision of those seraphim doing. They're just standing there praising God ceaselessly. This is also the case in Luke chapter 2, verse 13, when they appear to the shepherds. What is that host of the heaven, that great multitude of the heavenly hosts doing? Glorifying God and singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth um, and upon men on whom his favor rests. Uh, Revelation again, just tons of pictures of that kind of thing. And of course, they do all kinds of specific actions for God's people as God sends them to do. For instance, in Matthew 4.11, I'll just uh, spoil, give you the spoiler version here. This is where the angel appears to uh, Joseph in a dream to warn him, don't go or flee back, flee down to Egypt. Uh, or again, in uh, Acts 12, 5 through 10, that's where the angel appears to free the uh, people from prison. Um, in Acts 27, 23 through 24, an angel appears to Paul to tell him what's about to go to happen in order to encourage him and help him. Um, there's also, uh, oh, I'm sorry, in Matthew 4.11, I was actually wrong. That I was thinking of Joseph. That's Matthew 2. Matthew 4.11 is where the angels come and they minister to Jesus after his temptation. Um, where it says that angels appeared to him and ministered to him. At the end of Luke, chapter 22, verse 43, Garden of Gethsemane, what, is, what happens after Jesus uh, is praying? Angel appears and ministers to him. So these angels come up all kinds of random times and places in order to just do some work that God assigns them to do. And by the way, it's not impossible to think that God still continues to send angels to do that exact same kind of thing today. Um, I don't know if you've ever met anybody who claims to have seen an angel or been helped by an angel in an obvious way. I remember there was one Bible study at this church in St. Louis where a guy was insistent that an angel appeared to him to tell him he was going home from the war. And then the next day he went home from the war. <laughs> Could be. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Certainly God has done it in the past. There's no reason he won't do it in the future. But just as the same with miracles of healing, we said, we want to clarify, don't expect it to happen. <laughs> and don't put your faith in that, as though that's the foundation of your belief in God. After all, what does Paul warn us about angels in uh, the book of Galatians? Even if we ourselves or an angel from heaven appears to you and tells you a different gospel than you have heard, let it be eternally condemned. So, just because you even see an angel doesn't mean it's necessarily from God. Don't look at every account of, I've heard an angel as, well, obviously that's stupid. By the same token, it doesn't hurt to have a, a, a little healthy skepticism. Um, but, remember, it is possible, because angels are real, and God does really use them to accomplish all kinds of purposes. Anyway, we're over time, so let's close with the Lord's Prayer.
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. 